1: And I remember standing in church one night, and this is just after I'd given my life to the Lord, and I asked the Holy Spirit how I was going to be able to to live this new life that He'd given me. How am I going to get this mask off? And I just felt the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, just slip His hand underneath the mask and
0: just pop it off. The The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, our guest today is once again Justin Lippiot, who's originally from South Africa and is joining us again from his home on the Sunshine Coast. As we heard last time, Justin grew up pretending to be somebody he wasn't in order to be accepted by his peers and his father. He says he hid behind a rough exterior of drinking and fighting in order to keep people from getting to know the real him. However, today we'll find out how God takes off Justin's mask and sets him free. Once again, Justin is chatting with Eric Scatborough. Justin Lipiet, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Eric. Glad to have you
2: with us once again. And last time we heard how at 19 years old, after you got out of the army, you were a pretty rough and tumble guy. And you were working for your father, who was involved in a crime syndicate in South Africa. And he was using you to be his enforcer, his debt collector. Is that right?
1: Yes, that was my role and responsibility within the syndicate. So it seemed a little bit glamorous at the time, but unfortunately, I had to do a lot of things that I'm not proud of and Mm. that I, um, I guess, have had to deal with over the years. Um, But I think that as time grew on, my father and I became a little bit more distant in our relationship because we were, um, I guess, at different parts of our lives. I was constantly trying to prove myself to my father um, and my father was always trying to prove himself to his peers. So it didn't really make for a healthy relationship, yeah. Um, and I guess that sort of compounded eventually when my father had um, stolen a, a significant amount of money from the syndicate, and um, it made sense, and I, I felt obligated and, I guess, motivated by guilt to run away with my father to Greece.
2: So the two of you, your father and yourself, are now in Greece, kind of running from uh, people who are out to get him. Is that kind of the picture?
1: Yes, um, the syndicate had employed a whole lot of criminal elements to chase my dad and I to Greece. And um, initially, my dad and I had thought that we were living the high life. We stayed in the president's hotel in Athens, um, drove around in limos, drank champagne, Mm. all the top sort of things that you'd think gangsters do. -hmm. But certainly found out that once these uh, criminal elements from South Africa were chasing us down, that we had to get out of Athens and ended up going to Mykonos. We we stayed on Mykonos for six weeks uh, Mm -hmm. during a really sort of difficult time because I just felt that my whole life was a blur, just very, very, very confused time, and just I guess compounded by this the drinking and the drinking and the drinking and the drinking.
2: Yeah. So we yep. talked about that last time that one of the reasons why you were drinking so much and self-medicating was because inside you're miserable. You were trying to be this fake person, this alter ego, Billy the goat that you named it, uh, this rough exterior kind of guy. But inside you're, you know, you're not really that rough kind of a guy inside.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it becomes a self degrading thing that over Mm. time you just, because you're somebody that you're not, there's this misalignment. Yeah, I felt that I was drifting more and more and more and more away from who I actually was. Yeah. And um, anyway, my father and I eventually moved to another island, Casa Island, and I became a very successful entrepreneur there. Ran a restaurant and did lots of weird and wonderful things. We used to go to Bodrum every two months because South African visas were only valid for two months, and um, on one return trip between Bodrum and Kos Island, Bodrum is in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, I just dived off the ferry. I was going to swim back, and oh, wow. uh, so the whole ferry, you know, had to stop. They got lifeboats. When they eventually got me onto the ferry, they gave me a little bit of a beating, and oh, then wow. I ended up in jail on Kos Island for three days. My passport had been confiscated because I'd created such havoc
2: so this was supposed to be the high life yeah that's right (laughs) but it doesn't sound so good to me
1: no it it wasn't and i think the alcoholism and drug abuse are like so many other addictions they progressive Mm -hmm. yeah so you sort of do more and more of the same thing harder and harder to try and get a buzz i I don't know it's hard to explain Yeah, yeah Um, but I guess the more I try to dig myself out of a hole, emotionally, Mm -hmm. the deeper I dug myself into it.
2: Hmm. But meanwhile, you had this natural gift for starting a business.
1: Yes, I was very successful, and what happened was I developed a friend um, in the passport control and in immigration, Mm -hmm. and he came and warned me and said they were coming to arrest my father and I for smuggling. Mm -hmm. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny those allegations, by the way, but we ended up hightailing it to roads um, then to cyprus to try and get away from the police and by this stage we'd lost the um the criminal elements that had chased us from south africa but we ended up in Limassol on cyprus with no money just i guess the bags um that we had and some cash mm. um, that i'd had from the businesses and Uh, We basically ran out of money very quickly. We had nothing left. And two Israelis convinced us to sleep on the deck of a ship from Limassol to Haifa. So my dad and I sold um, as many of our possessions as we could to pay these guys who got us on the ship. And my dad and I slept on the deck. Um, They managed to get us through immigration in Haifa in Israel. Mm -hmm. And then we caught a bus down to Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. And my father and I moved into a hostel. And that was another sort of series of unfortunate events.
2: So that didn't work out well either?
1: (laughs) No. My timing always seems to be impeccable because the Gulf War broke out.
2: (laughs) From the frying pan into the fire, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I wasn't involved in the Gulf War. But a friend of mine was a a Satanist um, and a former member of the Cray Gang from the 70s. And so you know, we'd sit on the, the hostel balcony, um, smoking marijuana and drinking beer, watching the scud missiles blowing up Ramadan in, in Tel Aviv. Mm. Yeah. Uh, while my you know, the other people were in sealed rooms and bomb shelters. So it was a, a unique period of time oh, to yeah. be witnessing that.
2: So those were the Scud missiles coming from Iraq over to Israel. Is yeah, that right? that's right. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah.
2: Part of the Gulf War in the early nineteen nineties. Okay, so That's true. Yeah. things aren't going so well for you. Uh.
1: <laughs> no, they're actually getting worse. I was starting to slip more and more into, I guess, uh, I lived the persona more than ever before. Mm-hmm. And the real Justin was getting more and more and more lost. Mm-hmm. And um, then I met my ex-wife mm-hmm. in Israel, and I thought that I would change. But I couldn't remove the mask. I could never let her know that the person that she had fallen in love with wasn't real.
2: Wow. So you never really felt comfortable just being yourself with your wife, your first wife?
1: No, the lie became too big. I couldn't undo it. I, I didn't feel I could undo it. I didn't believe that I could go back. And so my ex, she wasn't my wife then, but we, we left Israel and went to the UK and, and, we, and I left my father behind and we got married. And um, we were married for five years before she eventually left me and said, you know, I can't deal with your drinking and, and, and you know, your behavior. So, hmm. I felt really abandoned again. Hmm. Uh, and, and it wasn't her fault. It was all my fault. Uh, yeah.
0: Um,
1: so, I eventually ended up moving back to South Africa. And I, I stayed with my brother and my father for a little while. Um, And both of those relationships didn't end up well. So I ended up sleeping homeless in the basement of a bar.
2: Mm. Before you continue, did anything ever come of the uh, crime syndicate guys searching for you and your father? Or did that just kind of fizzle out?
1: Yeah, it fizzled out. I think they just lost the resources and we'd we'd traveled around too Mm. much to be able to be caught out. Um, And I think all those guys probably got arrested anyway. Mm. Yeah, I've never sort of tried to open up those doors again, you know. Yeah. For obvious reasons.
0: You're listening to the story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is once again chatting with Justin Lippiot, who's originally from South Africa. As we're hearing, Justin's desperate desire to be accepted and affirmed by his dysfunctional father led him deeper and deeper into trouble and had taken a toll on his life. Meanwhile, he was still living life with a mask on, pretending to be somebody he wasn't. We'll find out what happens next in Justin's life and how God sets him free when we return. The Story Our guest today is once again Justin Lippiet, who's sharing about his troubled young adult years in South Africa and other countries. At this time in his life, he was pretending to be someone he wasn't and never letting anyone know the real him. Not surprisingly, this made him more and more miserable. Now we'll find out what happened next in his life and how God eventually sets him free. So now
2: at this point in your story, you're back in South Africa, but at a pretty low point.
1: Yeah, that's right. I was staying in Durban, but I had nothing. I had a backpack, which was everything that I owned. I had received a Dear Justin letter from my ex-wife that just sent me into a spiral of depression. Mm. And um, just severe drug abuse Mm. um, and, and obviously alcohol. And I slept in this basement of a bar and the guy used to lock it at 12 midnight and myself and four other guys used to stay in there. And I used to wet my clothes and sleep on them so that they could be ironed. Ironically, I used to um, sell insurance to low-income earners during the day uh, as a job.
2: You wet your clothes in order to keep them from wrinkling? Was that it?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you wet your clothes and then you fold them nicely and then you lay a blanket on top of them and you sleep on it.
2: Oh, I didn't know that was possible. So that's a poor man's way of having non-wrinkly clothes if you're going to be a businessman during the day.
1: Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Uh, And I remember once waking up, and this is just before I managed to get out, there was one of the guys that lived in there. He had a prosthesis, a false leg. Mm -hmm. And I remember waking up one morning with a terrible hangover, just hearing this thump, 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 thump. And, and I remember looking up and this guy was sitting on an empty beer crate with his prosthesis in his hand, squashing cockroaches. Oh, The place was infested with cockroaches. And I thought, oh, I have to try and get out of here.
2: I think that pretty much tells us everything we needed to know about that basement.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
2: So that was a very low point there after the breakup of your first marriage
1: yeah I I try to commit suicide a couple of times. Mm. and when I say that i you know I would jump in front of cars and and trucks and whatever. Uh, I'd mm. try and get myself killed by you know people on the street or in in you know, bad places. Uh, I just never got it right, thank God you mm. know <laughs> um, yes. but it, it was just just a way of trying to escape where I was
2: at that point, you felt there was no other way
1: no I didn't feel like there was any other way I I was completely stuck and in a downward spiral I had nothing nobody and some friends of mine actually got in touch with me I can't remember exactly how and I ended up moving back up to Johannesburg Mm -hmm. and I stayed with a friend of mine but the the drinking never stopped and the depression never stopped and so um, after about two years of that I went to a bar and and I met this lady at the bar who was absolutely phenomenal and she actually liked me and she didn't know who I was at all. I didn't have to pretend. Mm. And so I met my current wife, Barbara, in a bar. Mm-hmm. And as it so happened, I got divorced from my previous wife and remarried to Barbara. And Barbara and I, when we first got married, we actually got married because we thought it was the right thing to do. We'd been living together and... Mm -hmm. she'd come to know the lord oh how did that come about she went looking for god one night while i was drinking at home and she found a church and just gave her life to jesus she came back and she said you know i'm going to church i've given my life to jesus i'm going to go to life groups and i said you know well you have to choose it's either me or the church oh wow and uh, thank god the church won
2: amen and your wife was coming from a pretty rough background herself is that right
1: Yes, that's right. Both of her parents were deceased by then. Her mum had died of emphysema and her father had been murdered.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, so, you know, she came from a domestic violence background hmm. and that's her story to tell. But she was a mess and we had more baggage than Qantas between the huh. two of us. <laughs> um, Interesting so way of putting that. <laughs> Yeah. We were really dysfunctional when we got Mm, married. We used to fight a lot. And, you know, Barbara went for counseling because I didn't think I needed counseling because marriage was all about fighting, wasn't it? Screaming, fighting, swearing, not talking to one another.
2: Or or so you thought at that time, because that's what you saw. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And so the interesting thing
1: was that I knew that I had to change. I'd sort of hit this T-junction in my life. It wasn't a crossroads. It wasn't a fork in the road. It was a T-junction. I I basically crashed into it metaphorically, Mm -hmm. and I had to choose. It was either Jesus or death. You know, everybody had always said to me, Justin, you'll be dead or in jail by the time you were 30. And I was 28 at the time. Hmm. And I just I thought, I'm going to give Jesus a shot. And I've Mm -hmm. tried everything else. I've tried the witchcraft. I've tried the drugs. I've tried the alcohol. I've tried all the other bits and pieces. None of it worked. And I just needed to give Jesus a shot. And I remember standing um, in church one night, and this is just after I'd given my life to the Lord, and I asked the Holy Spirit how I was going to be able to to live this new life that He'd given me. And I said, what am I going to do about Billy the Goat? What am I going to do about Billy the Goat? How am I going to get this mask off and i just felt the presence of god the holy spirit just slip his hand underneath the mask and just pop it off and that vulnerable moment where you know that your life has changed forever Mm -hmm. but the insecure the afraid person inside is now vulnerable to the outside world Mm. and having to make those decisions, having to make the choices then to be Justin, to be happy with Justin. And and I guess for me, it wasn't about who I was. It was about whose I was. Mm. I didn't have to be proud about me. I just had to be proud about the fact that Jesus loved me enough
2: mm.
1: for who I was. And he loved me just the way I was. He didn't love Billy the Goat. He loved the Justin that was inside.
2: Mm-hmm. And did you feel at this point that you could be yourself and be real to your wife and to the Lord?
1: Yes. It was a transformational moment for me because Mm -hmm. I tried after that to go back to all the people, including my ex-wife, and ask for their forgiveness for the Mm -hmm. things that I've done, the things that i put them through. Not many people forgave me. It was Mm -hmm. a very, very harsh lesson in forgiveness. You know, the the release comes from me seeking forgiveness, not necessarily receiving it. Mm -hmm. And the upshot of that was that I became somebody that I'd always been, but I knew that my strength was coming from my weakness. It wasn't coming from a facade, this is the real deal, Mm -hmm. and my strength was coming from the Lord. He had made me whole. He had restored me to who I thought I could actually be.
2: Wow, fantastic. And what about the addictions?
1: Well, on the 1st of April, 1998, um, two days after I gave my life to Jesus, I stopped drinking. I stopped taking drugs. I stopped smoking. I used to smoke 30 a day. Um, And I guess my life just changed. It was very, very hard for me. I I spent a year staying at home because I just couldn't face, I, I couldn't deal with The fact that i'd have to go into bars or into environments where people were drinking i I couldn't do that anymore Mm -hmm. but the lord was really faithful and and he just gave me the strength he gave me the courage um and so my career my job changed the way i dealt with people changed so you know i used to tell the most horrendous amount of lies to sell things i I worked in retail Mm -hmm. at that stage I'd, i'd tell everybody lies about the goods that we were trying to sell and I remember once trying to sell this set of steak knives, and it was really, really hard. And because I'd halfway through my pitch, I realised I couldn't lie, huh. and so they were looking at me while I was stumbling and fumbling over my words. And I just said, "Look, this is the price. Do you want them or not?" Because <laughs> I, <just, laughs> I ran out of pitch. You know, I just didn't know yeah. what to say. Yeah, um, and 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 I guess that was the newfound part of my my life where I, I was open and honest about the fact that I'd been through Alcoholics Anonymous twice. And mm-hmm. so I started to wear my alcoholism, not as a badge, but as a scar. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say to people, look, I've got this scar, it's called alcoholism. It's never going to go away, mm-hmm. but it's not a big gaping wound. And I'm a changed person by the grace of God. And so, you know, i changed careers. I, I went into banking,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which was a bit, a bit ironic because when I went for my interview, my car had been repossessed by by the bank three huh. months earlier that I was applying for the same to the bank?
2: And, yes, the same Oh, bank. wow. That is ironic. Uh,
1: I had 11 uh, black marks against my name for non-payment of account and two judgments through the courts uh, for all kinds of uh, misdeeds. Hmm. I'd actually thought, Eric, that when you became a Christian that everything would come right. Mm-hmm that God would take away all the problems and all the consequences of your sinful nature and and, and all those things. And I was very, very deeply in debt. Hmm. And I, I remember crying out to the Lord one night and saying to him, Lord, what am I going to do with all this debt? And I remember the Lord impressing upon me so strongly the words pay it. And so with my dysfunctional thinking still slightly intact and a huge chunk of faith, I took my checkbook and I wrote out checks to everybody that I owed money to, mm. um, in, including my father. And then, to my pastor's surprise, stood up on a Sunday and testified to the fact that the Lord had said He was going to pay all my debt. Oh. Um, he was, <laughs> he was horrified. Nevertheless, and all of those checks bounced, on and nearly ended up in jail again. But the thing is that the Lord gave me the means to be able to pay back all that debt
2: oh eventually you did i did
1: i paid it all back yeah oh wow and god gives us the way god God will give you the way
2: Hmm.
1: our plans are not his plans and our thoughts are not his thoughts Mm -hmm. and the way we think we're going to get ourselves out of a mess is not the way god's going to get us out of the mess
2: well unfortunately we're running out of time but can you tell us how did your father react to you becoming a christian
1: my father thought that it was a betrayal of the Lippiet code Mm. and that um, I'd let the family down. Um, I'd let the family name down by becoming a Christian Mm. and disowned me, um, wouldn't talk to me and wouldn't forgive me. So he ended up drinking himself to death in um, the year 2000 in June. Mm. And I guess I will never have the opportunity, although I tried many, many times, I'll never have the opportunity of receiving His forgiveness Hmm. for becoming the man that I believed I should have been in the first place.
2: Hmm. Well, unfortunately, we're just about out of time, but you eventually come to Australia. How did that come about? We took a a step
1: of faith. Uh, I remember reading Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant with God and Abraham hears from God that he needs to leave the country and and his father's house and go to a land which the Lord would show him. Mm -hmm. And so we left South Africa and ended up in Australia during the global financial crisis. uh, Once again, my timing was impeccable. Oh my goodness,
2: you do have impeccable timing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And um, yeah, I I spent a a lot of my time in ministry in Melbourne and um, then in Sydney. And in Brisbane, I had the privilege of being an armor-bearer to many politicians and significant business people in Australia. Mm -hmm. I've been able to see and and lead parliamentarians to the Lord. Fantastic. I've um, I've, I've seen so many miracles in in, in this great Southland of the Holy Spirit. And I, I think every country in the South, anywhere in the world, always would claim that they're the the great Southland of the Holy Spirit. But I think that God's got a special heart for Australia as far as that's concerned.
2: Hmm. Justin Lippiet, you've come all over the world, but the Lord had His eye on you all the way, and He finally helped you become the real Justin Lippiet that He created you to be.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Justin, thank you so
0: much for sharing your story with us today.
2: No problem at all. Thank you.
0: That was Justin Lippiet chatting with Eric Scatterbow about his life journey and how God eventually set him free from living a fake life with a mask on and never letting anyone know the real him. However, as the Bible says, the truth will set you free. And when Justin met Jesus, who's the way, the truth and the life, his life was changed forever and the mask was taken off. Justin describes it this way. As soon as I gave myself to Jesus and accepted that my sins were forgiven, something within me happened. The mask of deception and fear that became so intertwined and so embedded in my life came off. It was as if the Holy Spirit had slipped his hand under the mask and supernaturally just popped it off. Well, how about you? Are you tired of living a fake life with a mask on and want to be set free? Are you tired of acting one way on the outside when on the inside you're miserable? God can set you free just like He did for Justin. If you'd like to pray with someone about this, our prayer line is available to you right now. 1 800 Pray For Me. That's 1 800 772 936. We'd love to pray with you on that number. 1 800 772 936. Just give us a call and you can have a chat with one of our prayer team members right now. Finally, I just want to let you know that Justin has gone on to be involved in several Christian ministries over the years and has been part of the leadership team of his church. Also, he's gone on to get two business-related master's degrees and now owns his own successful business in Queensland. He certainly has come a long way from his troubled young adult years. Well, thanks for joining us for Justin Lippiett's inspiring story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. Dad was in the ministry and Dad was often in his office working, preparing sermons or counselling or seeing people. And much of that time I remember being told to stay quiet, stay out of Dad's way. And within a couple of years I began to feel that other people were ministered to more deeply than I was. And you know, sometimes I just wanted to, a hug and just to be heard, and I wasn't. Kathy Scott is the author of the book The Road to Zimkasalia. Now, you may be thinking, where in the world is Zimkasalia? Well, it's actually not a country, but a combination of the many places in the world that Kathy has lived, including Zimbabwe, Kenya, South Africa, and then finally ending up here in Australia. We'll hear Kathy's international story next time. The story, story. just another way vision is connecting faith to life.